and welcome to the Auto Movie Podcast. I'm Chris Ratcliffe and in this show we discuss cars, in films and generally geek out about all things automotive in movies, TV and online. In this episode of the Intermission Podcast, my guest is commercial automotive filmmaker Al Clark. Al, welcome. Hello, thank you very much. This is uh, very exciting. Our first question as always is, what is your favourite movie or TV car of all time? Well... I think that's got to start with the film itself. And that was, it's still Ronin. It has to be Ronin. And Ronin just, I think, was just, you know, the definitive point of car chases when that film came. It set the standard so high for realism. And, you know, and the thing about it was, you know, things like the noise, the engines, and the fact that they managed to make Citrons and Peugeots sound fantastic, right? You know, you had suddenly like a desire to own a V6 Citron. It was bizarre and it just totally set the standard for realism and everything else and like you know jerry Bruckheimer absolutely smashed out the park with it and i don't know who was choosing cars i don't know who was kind of in charge of what cars should be chosen but out of all of them you know someone put in an e uh, e34 m5 in there and it has to be you know it was just like what a decision what an absolutely what a bizarre but awesome choice because there was no way that BMW supplied that car. I and mean, it was, you know, someone was a real car nerd, you know, the, the S8 and everything in there, you know, I think S8s were under the radar until Ronin. And now everyone, you know, knows that first gen S8 as the Ronin car. It, it just shot a nitrous and off you go. Not forgetting as well the 406s that look like super touring cars as well. Oh, absolutely. And what a, and just the fact that you sort of see those things sliding around all over the place, all around the film, smashing into curves and all sorts of stuff. I mean, it was just, it was so well done. And it's funny, I was actually uh, sort of doing some research into this like a few years ago, and I ended up finding a film called Subway, right. uh, which is a French film. And it was made in 1985, so it's, what, 12, 13 years when it's running, 98. And mm. you'll be astonished how similar it is. It's almost like it's the origin of the Parisian car chase, if you will. And ah. and and it's, you know, it is one of those, like, amazing, you know, raw car chases. It's exactly the same kind of feel. It's got the same locations. The camera angles are really similar. It's, it's really interesting. And it's kind of like, I think now, like, you know, what is the current standard for car chases? And I look at you know, Mission Impossible Fallout, which is, has the, you know, a fantastic, fantastic car chase. And there's so much to talk about that as well. But, you know, and again, shout out to Rob Hardy, who filmed that. It was just, did an amazing job on it. But the, you know, that is, a, I think it's an E20, that's an E32 5 series, isn't it? It's, uh, it's, uh, it's, oh, it's, it's an old green one. You're my BMW knowledge. Yeah, yeah. E28? It's an E28 5 series. And, you know, Tom Cruise is, absolutely rowing that car around and i think as i say it's kind of like you need to sort of to make it as an action director you seem to be able to have to shoot a car chase in some sort of like parisian environment or like under like a like a raised metro system like in new york you know like french connection style so you need to be going through pillars and avoiding you know avoiding pretty girls and you know and lorries <laughs> with mirrors on the side of them and stuff like that you know that's so yeah to answer your question m5 <laughs> that's always a solid choice if there's one answer i think that always works it's whatever the question an m5 yeah definitely. what a car, what a car. <laughs> so which came first then for you was it cameras or was it cars it was cars first i was i've you know as i think so many of us you know just became obsessed with cars early on you know my, my first automotive love was actually fire engines i thought they were the greatest yeah. thing in the entire world you know, I love fire engines so much that I once called the fire service from home and wanted to speak to a fireman. And then when I realized that I was <laughs> doing the wrong thing, uh, I hung up. And then two fire engines arrived outside my parents' house and I was mortified. But, you know, <laughs> got to see a fire engine before spending a lot of time in my bedroom. So that was cool. Wow. And then that developed into building Lego cars and then eventually toy cars and then eventually getting a a little mini is the first one and that was it set for life at what point did you pick up a camera for the first time what was the occasional was there just a desire in you to make videos yeah so the first time i did it i was working in wales for a music company and a friend of mine used to go and um and this is the most ridiculous story of all time a friend of mine used to work uh, on the other side of wales we lived in uh, north of swansea and then my housemate uh, worked out towards the border and he used to get a rent a car pretty much twice a week and 
we started to do, for some reason, rent-a-car reviews, which involved us going out to the Brecon Beacons, smashing the car up the A4069 as fast as we possibly could <laughs> at night. Sort of handbrake turning, drifting these things, J-turns, all sorts of stuff. And just kind of like filming it in the worst possible quality shaky cam that you could imagine. But then, you know, going home and making some hugely over-edited, massive dramatic thriller music and stuff all over <laughs> whilst we're doing burnouts in McGann's and stuff. And uh, <laughs> that is genuinely the first sort of automotive filming that I did. It was all, you know... Again, it was all totally inspired by Top Gear, which was sort of starting at the time. And did that ever get get uploaded anywhere, or was that just for your own? Do you know what? I did actually. I, I restored an old computer recently, and I actually found the files. And I, I wouldn't let them see the light of day, but they do exist. <laughs> so maybe I'll send you a private one. You can laugh at where it all started. But funnily enough, it was during one of those escapes up to Brecon when we saw. Top Gear actually being filmed. And I didn't realise this at the time, but they were filming the the E60 M5 review. And it was the, you know, we were like driving along and all of a sudden the road was shut. And we're like, what? This is our road. What do you mean? And, you know, we're just going to go and blat up the road. And it was all shut for, they were doing car-to-car shots um, up the right. A4069, which, you know, you'll see in a lot of videos. If you've never driven it, it's in the Black Mountains. It's a fantastic bit of road. Um, and it's got a very famous hairpin and everyone sort of does skids on it. And if you go back there now, there's constantly just drift marks all over that corner. But that was um, that was Top Gear filming really early on, uh, the E60 M5 review. And, you know, when we saw it on TV, we we're like, oh my God, that's it. And we sort of that was my first kind of appreciation for what was involved. And I was working for the, you know, so I was working for the music industry at the time I was selling, um, I say selling, I was working on um, synthesizers and electric drum kits for a company called Roland. And so my, my film knowledge was, was virtually zero, but I had a huge interest in sound and music. And obviously Top Gear was back in those days as well, just great soundtracks mm. and really, really good kind of sound design and stuff as well. Like with, you know, with the, the early reviews, which, you know, still to this day, I think you can look back on those and go, you know, that was really cool TV. What was still like insanely basic by even now standards, but totally stands the test of time with terms of feel and character, at least, you know. So you are shooting these videos yourself. You start doing more of the reviews. You start doing, going to events. What What's the sort of the progression as that builds and then moves away from just being a hobby? I eventually got fired from that job because I hated it and I didn't, uh, I, I just decided to, well, I essentially quit, but it was, you know, I was going to be quit or fired. And, you know, I realized that I didn't want to be stuck in an office. So I went and actually looked at a couple of things and I nearly, I nearly joined the RAF, um, but I couldn't do to a, a technical paperwork error of all things. Um, okay. And then I got to this point where I was, where I realized that I needed to do something creative and I had no idea what to really do, but the, it actually all started where I came up with this kind of business idea, and this is you've got to imagine now. Set your set your mind back a few a uh, few years before what we considered and take for granted so quickly now is just GoPros and action cams and yeah, stuff. Yeah. And obviously, you know, we were sort of around with the the burst of the track day scene. You know, when track day suddenly just exploded in terms of popularity, where people realised they could take these capable cars you know you could buy an m3 for not a lot of money you know you could buy an e36 m3 for two grand back in the day and um Blimey. you know yeah right and then that uh that whole um scene just exploded and i sort of had this business idea where i bought some bullet cams and mm. i would go along to track days and alongside the photographer i was renting out for the day these bullet cam systems because you know people had no other way of filming their laps and I, yeah. could, I could write those to a DVD there and then or put them on a CD and that was literally how the name um, my original sort of like email address which was Track Day Films started and that's and then that was where the filming started and then decided to get a, a camcorder and started to film some exterior footage as well because I thought well you know for a little bit of extra money or something else to do during the day I just thought I'd go and film them from the outside and people loved that and would pay quite a lot of extra money to have you know a video of their car going around the track and then that became my business move and then it was um yeah. and then that progressed really onto someone saying well can you make a full-length film I said absolutely and then that progressed onto something else uh, making another full-length film for someone else and then I got at the time, I was sort of getting into drifting as well because, you know, drifting was 
just sort of starting to make it onto the internet as something that you could go and do. And, you know, my very long-term friends who have now, you know, been at for years with Driftworks started driftworks.com and started going to do things like that. And then I got involved with an organizer who was promoting drift events. And he said, would you like to film the event? And I was like, absolutely. So I went to, went along for a season and filmed an entire season of drifting and made, got to just make cool music montages with no rules. I had no real, I had no criteria for all anything, you know, back in the day, it was a bit of a lawless, bit of a lawless land outside of YouTube <laughs> yes. and you could kind of, you know, smash music on, it was before content aware was out and all sorts of things like that. And it was kind of before monetization really became a big deal as well. So people weren't too worried that if you have, you know, like a, a Rage Against the Machine track on or something like that, it, it didn't really matter. It was kind of like when MTV was huge as well, you know, you could kind of just do anything you want. And because there was no precedent set by other people and other filmmakers, you know, you just did your own thing and it was, it was great. And then, so I did a few of those. Then we had one big event film that went absolutely viral. And even at the time, you know, to get more than a million views was, was, it was basically Charlie bit my finger, sneezing panda, <laughs> and then a few other bits and pieces, right? And um, showing our age now. Yes. Uh, yeah, really. Yeah, start of the internet. And someone from an agency gave me a shout and said, look, we'd like to, we've seen a film on there. Uh, would you like to make a film for us? And I said, absolutely. And that film turned out to be for Car Magazine. Right. And it was Car Magazine's very first venture into a video review. And it was my first proper sort of commercial shoot to go and be paid to go and film something. And it was happened to be the, of all things, the Veyron Supersport launch. Oh, wow. Um, which I did with Chris Chilton, shout out. And he, yeah, we were, it was the most ridiculous shoot I think I'd ever done. And it was really fascinating, actually, because I was um, shooting pictures along, I was shooting video and Paul Barshon, the photographer, who's was photographing. And then it was a very, very weird moment where I was infringing on his photography because he had, you know, like a, like a six page spread to, to, to shoot. Yeah. And, and all of a sudden there's a spoil little oik, oik running around with a rubbish camcorder and uh, sort of asking him to just drive up and down the road at, at high speed, which was useless for him because he couldn't do any photographs, uh, you know, because he wasn't used to sort of having to pan and shoot. And we ended up I think it was a bit of an uneasy shoot because no one really knew what anyone was supposed to do in terms of priority because obviously video didn't sell anything yet. It was all an experimentation. But to make a good video, you know, you need to shoot a lot of stuff. You know, you can you can create a huge amount of story out of a single photograph. You know, you can you know, create, you know, a lot of words from that and support it. But but a video clip has to have links and story and dynamicism to it and and it was it was fascinating to get through that shoot and get to the end and go right well there wasn't enough time to do either of that and we hadn't you know none of us really got it so but that was a really fascinating time and then um the video did quite well in terms of what they expected of it but yeah. they were still trying to drive traffic to their own website and sort of do it through their own video player and so and in then you know people still were trying you know assumed that they could share the world with youtube which of course is virtually impossible you know if you've got anything on your own site it's going to get a tiny percentile of what the uh, the yeah so the youtube you know viewership is going to be because everyone you know by default google's everything and youtube's everything so yeah but that was still you know very early experimentation and then um so we ended up shooting another review and that didn't do quite so well because youtube was really starting to blow up and they just didn't want to put this stuff on YouTube because they thought, well, there's only there's no point because they were, didn't see the... We hadn't worked out yet that putting content in other places still can drive you back to a certain... Like to Car Magazine in this example. And so that was a really, really interesting time. Um, and then the biggest revelation of them all happened when Canon 5D Mark II came out and someone flicked the button that went from picture mode to video mode and suddenly realized they had depth of field and a cinematic looking lens and that mm. just blew everything open and um i think that was the definitive moment for a huge number of people's careers where it either went really bad or really good for them because you know huge film teams with you know lorries like literally arctic lorries full of stuff you know with panavision splattered all on the side of it could suddenly produce something that 
you know, you could produce something with this tiny little camera that looked 80%, 90% as good in some situations. And one of the things I've learned over the years is that as much as it pains me to say, the vast majority of the audience don't actively appreciate, you know, necessarily the, the, the quality of content. They, I think they, in their brain, they understand that it's higher quality, but it doesn't seem to add to their experience in a conscious way. You know, I get, I mean, I'm exactly the same, you know, I derive as much enjoyment from watching cheap, simple vlogs shot on shaky cam as I do from amazing, beautiful films shot by anyone else. You know, it's the same entertainment value, but different, different reasons. And, and obviously in those days, we wanted everything to try and look everything like a, you know, a huge commercial, but, and the idea of this kind of raw viral hadn't really taken off yet either. Um, or people hadn't understood it yet, perhaps. Maybe that's a better way of describing it. But yeah, so the 5D came out and I got a phone call from an agency called FP Creative, which was run by a guy who I owe basically my entire career to, a guy called uh, Matt Franey. And he uh, had a an art director working with him called Andy Thomas, who said, would you like to shoot a little video for us? And we hadn't done this before. It was the same It was the same concept. It was going to be off the back of a photography shoot. And we were going to shoot the XKRS. That was the XKR. It was pre-XKRS out in um, a little circuit in Portugal somewhere. Not Portimao, though, but um, I forget the name of it now. But Estoril? Mm, no, uh, very. it's an obscure oh, place. Wow. Okay. Um, <laughs> it's a really cool track. I'll try and remember it. We got to have two cars, so they changed the precedent by having two cars on set. I was shooting alongside uh, an amazing photographer called Easton Chang, who was flown over from Australia to to shoot. And we kind of just shot two videos with these cars. And there was an experiment. It was, Jaguar hadn't asked for it. But what was really interesting was, and this was the sort of the foresight that Matt had, was that he would pay me to make the video and then it was going to be offered to Jaguar afterwards to say, well, you know, here are the photos, but here's a video. Right. Do you like that? Okay. And they went for it and they bought the video. And that was literally, I think, the moment, the sort of the, the definitive origin point where companies put videos out from children with cameras disguised loosely as as high-end-ish commercials and yeah it was astonishing and you know work exploded at sort of at, at that exact moment where suddenly they realized that they could get a video that they could punt out on all their channels across all their platforms but they were paying less than 10 percent of the price wow because you know back in those days i was happy earning a significantly more you know modest day rate and mm. I was totally happy. I was, you know, I was 25 or something like that at the time. And I, you know, wow. just, just any money at the time was great. I was like, yep, whatever, let's go, let's do it. <laughs> and in a way that kind of damaged hugely the value of what we did. But at the same time, it exploded the world open and exposed a whole new method of making film and true independent filmmaking and the you know power of computers now, you know, I've got a... Yeah machine next to me which is as powerful as any hollywood machine is anywhere else and you know it, it's crazy like that that mm. that you've got the power of that you know even laptops you can sit on an airplane editing a 4k movie now <laughs> true it's true it's it's crazy what's what's been achieved since then sorry that's quite a long a long answer so you get a phone call from jaguar yeah and they say oh so you get a call from the agency mm. they tell you about the shoot they tell you who it's for and what they want to do did you have any grasp then of what that opportunity was? Or were you just like, oh, that sounds fun. Let's go and see what happens. It was definitely uh, a bit of both. One side, it was an official manufacturer video. And it was working for a, you know, for a proper a London mm. agency. And it was kind of my, I'd had, um, you know, my only other dealings with anyone in London had been sort of, you know, like a Maserati dealer had talked about the idea of, a walk around of their studio and stuff. And, yeah. you know, this was a totally different thing. And suddenly your creativity goes wild because you've got a racetrack, a, a car, and, you know, this was an unthinkable thing. And people who are willing to do whatever you ask. Yeah, it was it was crazy. We had no pro drivers at all. We were just, you know, it was, it was actually the director of the company, Matt, just hooning around because he likes driving. And it was completely, again, no rules. But, you know, we yeah. didn't, you know, we had no music chosen, the you know the stock library of music was quite small at the time and 
difficult to get hold of. And yeah, it was it was very clearly though an opportunity to show what could be done. And we had to work within the constraints of what the cameras were capable of. You know, we're still, you know, my camcorder only shot, you know, 720p or 1080i. So I used it as a like a slow motion thing and then you know, stability wasn't was was literally barely a thing. There was no gimbals. There was nothing like that. You know, it was it was very very early on in that time. So, what we ended up doing was doing quite a lot of shots where we were tracking the cars, car to car, and yeah. we'd have a, a camera bolted onto the bonnet of the renter car, and that ended up actually showing the fact that you could put like energy in the shot by having a little bit of shake and a little bit of you know a little bit of bounce okay. and stuff and all of a sudden you're like oh that's got sort of a feeling of speed and energy and and you know well that works and that was a really simple setup so we just kind of hooned around with this megan and this xkr um, <laughs> trying to pretend that they were the same speed and i had no other driver so i was driving the megan and I was looking through the view, fi- uh, the little sort of the screen on the back of the 5D on the bonnet, trying to keep the XKR in frame. So I'm, <laughs> I'm sort of offset to him, and it was brilliant. It was, but um, wow, that was a real kind of proof of, proof of what could be done and the concept of how that might be. But yeah, no, really mm. fascinating. And then you know that's now grown into kind of the default way of doing things. You know, like it's one and two man teams dominate so much the uh the youtube space now because you just you know you still obviously you know i now work on quite a lot of the the bigger productions as well but i still love the small man team the dynamicism of it and the the fact that you can everyone has to work and bring something to the party that you know it's it's really good fun and a lot it's a lot of work and a lot of hours but um yeah you create really interesting content these days as a result of just you know these tiny teams and Mm. you know lack of opinions from other people you know you haven't got client on site necessarily who's telling you oh we don't like that shot you know you're just doing what you want to do and then the film comes out the other side and aside from a few little edits you know that's largely it and it's it's an incredibly free way of creating content and i'm long may it continue (laughs) absolutely I think a lot of people, when they watch particularly YouTube clips, they're aware that it's one or two people or it's self-filmed or whatever it might be. But what is the modern big production like in terms of people, in terms of jobs, in terms of the client even? Do you get big briefs? Do you get a large remit? Do you get, you know, is it a lot of people, a lot of equipment or is it, do they try and sort of squeeze as much as possible out of a, a, a small team. When you're on a large shoot, so you know if you're on a large uh, Bentley commercial or something like that or whatever, um, you're going to have probably realistically the best part of 60 people on set. And that sounds like quite a lot of people, but when you start to filter it down, you, know, you go, you've got your you know, client or a couple of clients, then you've got a director, you've got a you know, producer, then you've got the you know, first AD, and then that's straight away your what, five. And then you've got yeah. a camera department that could be five people. And then you've got two talent models, and you've got probably a sound team, which is probably two people. A drone team is probably two or three people these days. Then you've got catering, and then you've just got production assistants who need to move stuff. You know, you've got people who shut the roads. You've got people who just literally have to drive the hero cars from one location to the other. And you've got a detailing team who are keeping the car clean because, you know, when you need to move on to the next shot, you might have some dirt that's been picked up on the under the side of the rear bumper and stuff. And even though we might not be shooting rears, you'll suddenly, it just needs to be ready to go. And that's, that's the thing with the, the big teams is you can shoot that entire film with a smaller team. But the difference will be is partly risk um, in that you're assuming that everything will go right because when you need something changing or something does go wrong, you've got no resources to fix that. If a tire punctures, that's one of you's got to get out and start changing the tire and then clean your hands because you've got to have a hand shot next, you know, and that sort of stuff. But if you've got a team that someone can drive off, go and get a, a wheel changed or whatever it is, and, and that's done in five minutes and then you get going again, that's really important. And then from the creative side of it, you've got to tie in these days. Everything is, there are so many platforms and so much work now goes into making stuff look right across all of your outputs. So for example, your, you know, your print advertising and your online 
presence on your like on your .com website or the mm. actual commercial. All the color palettes need to tie in with each other, and all the messages and all the angles need to be pre-approved. And you know, because oh, wow. if you're shooting quite a challenging car, for example, like the well, let's stick with Bentley. So say the Bentayga, which is you know you know is a visually polarizing vehicle um it's got some it's actually got some really good angles on it and but you have to shoot it in those angles and those can be quite tricky to maintain sometimes and if you're on your own trying to shoot out the back of a van with a ronin which is like a gimbal system and a and a camera on top of that you know you're going to get it's going to be difficult to get the elevation that you need or you know you've got to shoot Mm. quite long lenses so it doesn't look like it's kind of fishbowled you know cars tend to look much better on a longer lens in terms of, you know, sort of commercial feel and stuff. So your yeah. only real way of getting that is with a proper tracking vehicle. So suddenly you've got five people that make a tracking vehicle. You know, you've got a driver, an arm controller, a head controller, a focus puller, and probably a director in there as well. So all of these things are what build into the, just to make those, you know, 60 second, 30 second clips that you see on the internet that you have no mm-hmm. idea about. And then it gets even further down the road. You know, you've got the retouching team once it gets back to the UK who retouch all the leaves that come on the grill or they, they Photoshop out a lamppost or a production assistant who's just gormously looking at the camera in the background. <laughs> and, you know, all that kind of stuff that you never spot. And because ultimately, multi-billion pound automotive company still has that standard that you need to represent. And if all your output, you know, is even though it's you might you might get the clicks you know but if every output came through you know seen through glass or shmi or someone like that you know you get a lot of views but ultimately what does that say in terms of if you have no other output about your standards because their standards is a completely different thing it's nothing that they're doing wrong it's nothing like that but they're not looking to create a beautiful cinematic film that invokes emotion and stuff. They're looking to tell you about their great day out in the car and talk a little bit about features, and then they'll just move on to the next car. And that's kind of it. You know, you're creating content as opposed to, you know, without trying to sound too uh, up high about it, you know, you're trying to create art that has some sort of lasting appeal and hopefully sells cars because, you know, you put people in the mindset and go, huh, I could see myself in that. Sometimes, you know, the films are trying to turn around people's perceptions of cars, you know, when you've got a specific PR challenge. You know, the we shot the McLaren Senna. I shot pretty much all the release material for that. And the first reveal that we did um, was this kind of like cool, funky film where we kind of ignored showing the car too much. And there was like just a clip at the end. And, and then the commercial came out. And everyone, I think, myself included, found the Senna quite a challenging car to look at as well it's not a naturally beautiful looking car and especially in the launch color which kind of emphasized a few of the difficult panels and stuff so it's very hard to film the angles and then when we got to film the first like proper dynamic film with it we we're out at um, circuit almeria in um or almeria in fact and the car was completely black it was matte black black wheels which is a challenge in itself anyway to film oh, but yeah. it looked sick like it was awesome like you know it sat properly the nose was low properly because you know we couldn't get the car to lower in the studio because it was a prototype so the car was sitting low and cool and you know you had bruno senna and um, paul reese as well who's awesome driver smashing around in the track and just once you see it moving all of a sudden the car made sense and static, it didn't look anything special. It just looked like a bit of a wacky car with huge wings. And then when you saw it moving, you go, okay, now that looks like a spaceship going around a track. So just going back to what you're saying about having a consistent feel, mm. what's the output process at the moment from a video point of view? Because obviously you've got perhaps Instagram, which is a very specific aspect ratio. You've got all sorts of PCs and laptops and tablets and God knows whatever else all the way up to the thing that might be projected in IMAX on a digital laser projector. Yeah. Do you get a steer as a uh, as a creative to say, we want you to film something in this aspect ratio, or do you sort of create the biggest you can and then almost work into those smaller forms for different platforms? On all the current stuff that we are filming generally these days, you assume that it's going to have to be cropped to some ridiculous portrait aspect ratio it's 
we have reached we you know we've very much reached that point where you you know instagram stories are a great way of putting content in front of people and mm. it's also the most single awkward thing in the entire world to adapt to because obviously cars aren't very tall and thin either so <laughs> um you end up with like tons of sky and tons of road in this tiny little car in this shot and you know you end up just not using the shots that you want to use so yeah it's a huge challenge we know generally going in that we're going to expect to film everything in 16 by 9, which is what your normal TV at home roughly is. Yeah. Now, we very rarely get to shoot in what's called anamorphic, which is when you get the black bars at the top and the bottom. And that's a 235 aspect ratio or something similar to that. And that is produced. That's not actually just black bars overlaid over the film. That is actually the, the physical image is that shape. And that's done by the lens squeezing the image, which creates this amazing effect. But we, the reason that we don't really get to shoot a few of these uh, films like this is because partly because the portrait problem with Instagram mm. basically negates it immediately because you run out of resolution very, very quickly. Um, even if you shoot in 4K, the second you've now then squashed that by half your screen on a 60 by 9 screen, and then you have to make a portrait out of that, you're, you're really kind of dead in the picture then. And then the other problem with that, of course, is when you're doing retouching and closing up panel gaps on cars, and which is, you know, you have to do on moving images now. And Wait, wait, wait. <laughs> so you have a moving car. I, I get the thing about lampposts and leaves and, and just detritus, yep. but they actually retouch cars to close up panel gaps. Absolutely, yeah. Sometimes, wow. yeah, sometimes, you know, cars come with 3D printed parts, non-final parts, and very often you find, you know, you've got like a an unsightly panel gap, especially on some of the more, you know, carbon composite style cars. So you have to then track in the car, apply this kind of like warping mesh to the car, and then tidy it all up manually. It, it is a, a hell of a process, and thankfully one that I don't get involved in. There are some <laughs> very, very clever people who are much, I don't, wow. think, I don't think they ever see the light of day, but those guys do some extraordinary stuff. You know, like we clean up the visual silhouette of cars constantly. So, you know, we'll remove, you know, exhaust pipes that hang a little lower than perhaps the sill line do. And oh. uh, we'll take yeah. off little plastic flaps. You know, those are removed all the time just because they, just because they're distracting because you'd never know it in real life and you wouldn't care in real life. But when you're looking at it on a screen and you've got a car that's got, you know, real life problems like parking sensors and stuff, you know, they're actually quite ugly once you get trained on them. And those, <laughs> sorts of, yeah. And those sorts of things just pull those things out all the time. You know, we've taken we've taken wow. door locks off. You know, we've shot cars, left-hand drive cars with reversed badges on and reverse number plates to flip them to British. Right-hand drive, all these little tricks that you do to to make things work um, and just wow. you know, bring these cars to life. I mean, now it's it's there's actually a I haven't been on one of these shoots yet myself, but one of the teams that I worked with recently, Movie Bird out in Norway, was shooting a, a commercial and they didn't have the real saloon car that they were trying to shoot, but they rented from Sixth a Mercedes E-Class, covered it in motion tracking stickers, and then they motion tracked <laughs> the new car over that. I, I can wow. personally tell, but if you didn't know what you were looking for and no one had prompted you to check, you would go like, oh, yeah. it's just a car. Um, and wow. you know, it's really getting down now to the point where your output has to be so in- insanely polished and for good reason, you know, because, you know, we, we got standards, right? And we want to make stuff look good. And because everyone else is smashing it out of the park as well these days, you know, some amazing content. You know, if you ever want to follow some interesting car companies that like Audi USA have the most insane marketing budget and produce some incredible, you know, films. But those are much more like Hollywood films, whereas... Porsche, for example, produce these incredibly polished, Bentley produce these like massively polished films that really mm. kind of like dictate how you perceive the brand and stuff. And It's almost like watch adverts or something like that, isn't it? It's all just perfection in this sort of heightened reality almost. Absolutely. You're, you're setting this kind of emotional expectation from the viewer of what you want to see, what you want them to see, really. You know, it's it's really interesting. There's there's a whole discussion to be had about pulling wool over the eyes of the, the viewer. And that's why I think, you know, vlogs get a lot of love is because, you know, you're removing that veil of commercialized polish off it. You know, you kind of feel like you're seeing the real thing. And I think that's yeah somehow quite emotionally engaging. But at a motor show, when that screen comes on at Geneva, 
And as I say, you know, if, if it doesn't look absolutely smashing, it just doesn't look good. And then there's, you know, the, and the hype is lost because if you've just got some cheap video of your one million pound, even, even a, not even that, you know, if you just, if you think that the new Ford Focus and you watch a video and you, this is some cheap video of it driving around Millbrook, it's, no one's going to be impressed. There's going to be no hype when that thing comes off. Mm. It's, it's still a really, really important thing. And people have been doing, you know, it's no secret that manufacturers have to tweak bits and bobs. And one of the things, you know, we're always pushing wheels out in pictures and stuff like that for magazines and getting the fitment right. And, you know, doing all that stuff that, you know, perhaps we do in real life to our own cars, but manufacturers have to have, you know, tolerances or something like that. So, you know, they can't have sweet, you know, wheel fitment and stuff, but, (laughs) but you're trying to just, you just pull those wheels out a little bit and you just, you know, you make that car a tiny bit lower or, you know, you, you get rid of the shadows beneath the car or you sort of rather you increase the shadows beneath the car. So the car feels a bit lower to the ground and right. All these little, there's millions and millions of tricks, but, and it's not lying. It's sort of lying, but it's not lying. Lying. It's polish. It's polish. It's very, very good polish. And, um, (laughs) And it's, you know, and that is why you end up becoming a, an automotive specialist because mm. you end up with such a weird, specific group of skilled people who do very odd yeah. things. And, you know, a normal retoucher might not have a clue how to go about doing some of the stuff that needs to be done. Whereas, you know, like automotive guys and 3D effects guys will really know what they're, they're trying to do with these cars. And you've also helps to be a car person. And, you know, a lot of the guys that work in these industries, especially in the automotive film industry, are car people. So they kind of get it. They know that it's got to look cool. They know that it's got to look fast or it's got to look luxurious. And, you know, you often, I think the early perception was that you can chuck in virtually any director if they're a good director and they'll make something out of it. And that to a certain extent is true, but they'll end up creating like like a piece of content that is perhaps visually fascinating and, and a really cool piece of work but the car bit you'll always go well why is the car not doing this and that looks wrong <laughs> you know like speeding up cars is like one of my most hated oh. things in the world it's it's drives me mental and it's um i always describe speeding up cars on video as imagine a speed ramp and you drive a car over it slowly and you can imagine the front of the car bouncing up and down and bouncing up and down but if you drive over it really quickly the body barely moves it just goes boom, boom and you carry on yeah. as if the speed ramp wasn't there uh, but if you start speeding up slow footage you end up with a car that looks like you've just gone over a speed ramp slowly and it bobbles around and it moves and the car suddenly has no weight anymore and it it just looks like it's floating around and it's it just looks cartoony and like it's out of keystone mm. cops or something and it's just not right and if you think about i tried to phrase it recently that you know if you remember those amazing golden era british touring car clips of you know the bumper cam with the you know the audis and the nissan primaries and stuff just like following each other inches from each other those cars bouncing around on their tires inches from each Mm. other in so much real speed and you know that was kind of like where we where we ended up making that bugatti uh chiron world record film as our you know a single shot now, can we just talk about that, actually? Because mm. I think that I've seen a few companies recently come out with high-speed tracking cars. Yeah. So usually GTRs or I think in one case there was a Lamborghini with a bonnet removed yeah. and a tripod yeah. clamped in place. Yeah. If you are trying to track a Bugatti, what do you use as a tracking car? Well, if you're trying to track it from zero to 400, exactly like we did... There is only one other car that can do it, and that is another one. And it's as simple as that. It is it is another Chiron. And funnily enough, I've actually just, and this is amazing timing really kind of considering all of this, is that I've been uh, asked to put together a, a little behind the scenes from that film because it's a couple of years since we filmed that now, and I think it's it hit 39, over 39 million views for just wow. the cinema version. And then we're... Yeah. Uh, you know, I think and then a further 100 million views on other social media platforms and stuff, which is bananas numbers and so i'm actually going to put together a little behind the scenes film of that of exactly how we did it with a camera and i've actually i'll show the camera how it was all rigged and stuff um i've got the the footage from from that so i'll put that together and let people know and maybe we can uh, get that shared out we'll definitely definitely mention in a future episode one thing that i always think about whenever i see external cameras is if you are bolting it onto a rig that's bolted onto the chassis obviously it's 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 not going anywhere but if you're doing something like that, 
not only is how is the camera mounted, is it whether it's sort of clamped or suctioned or whatever, but do you ever think to yourself, like, what happens to this camera (laughs) if at 250 miles an hour a quick release plate goes or something? Oh, yeah. So that particular shot, the the Chiron shot, we were, yeah, so we're doing 400 kilometres per hour, and I think we actually tested it up to about 420. And honestly, in a Chiron, it doesn't feel like anything. It feels like 100 miles an hour. It's an insane wow. car. It's it's unbelievable. <laughs> it's absolutely phenomenal. Yeah, you you've, you need to take precautions. So, you know, you have a, a tensile, high tensile tether around something mm. that doesn't snap. But ultimately, you know, it's the camera that we used is not a strong camera. It's a little, it's quite a frail little thing. And, but quite lightweight. But the the key is, is you put it somewhere where there's, as little vibration and as little wind as possible. So it was tucked right into a sort of a, a little cove, as you will, on the back of the Chiron. So it was out ah. of all the, the wind. You know, the big GTRs, so if, you know, there's um there's a couple of GTRs in the UK, tracking cars, one's owned by mm. Mauro and one's Neil's. And those hang big arms off the back. It's called a black arm. And then you hang some sort of flight head arrangement on the back it could be like a a gimbal one which is which is a stepper motor which means that you've got a computer inside moving it to react to to the to the bounce and then you've got gyro stabilized ones which are sort of proactively physically stabilized because they've got you know spinning gyros in them and those are generally the really expensive ones gimbals are much much cheaper to make but the the you know the gyro heads are half a million pounds some of them yeah it's it's big old money but those take loads differently. So if you're going really, really fast, a gimbal on its motors can give up. The motors will just go, I haven't got enough volts to stabilize this. And it just lets go. And the camera topples. Oh. Yeah. So it won't crash to the ground or anything. And all the bolts are incredibly strong and they've kind of nailed that right. And again, you've got the safety tensile line to stop it sort of smashing into a car behind. Hasn't stopped it happening though. And I've seen, I've seen plenty of clips from, you know, people's phones and stuff where they've sort of stolen footage and from other shoots where stuff's just gone wrong. And I remember seeing oh. a, a Mercedes commercial where, you know, they hadn't quite lifted the head in time as this car went under the camera and it smashed into the top of the windscreen. Oh, I was, yeah, that was cool. And then we've had, I mean, there's a great, there's actually a really good clip of someone destroying a Russian arm on YouTube. It's, I think they're filming a Robbie Madison bike video in, um, right. He's got this kind of really cool motocross bike, which he's jumping between old planes in this like plane graveyard. And yeah. the, the Russian arm comes along and just buries the head in the ground across a little bit of a lump. And you see it, oh. you, you see the whole thing snap off in slow motion. Yeah. But the, ho- the whole weight of the assembly is held on by one BNC cable and <laughs> it just flops about and then the, the clip shuts and it's brilliant. But so it absolutely does happen, but you know, and it's really heavy as well. I can't. People think about their cameras and stuff. You know, uh, a big heavy setup is going to weigh going on sixty to eighty kilograms. And wow, yeah, it's, it's huge. You know, the the if you've got a big zoom lens on, because obviously with a Russian arm, which um, I, if I should probably describe a Russian arm, a Russian arm is basically a slightly generic term, even though it's specifically to about something is a generally an SUV of some sort with a pivoted crane on the top of it. And what that allows you to do is spin the camera the whole way around the car. So you can have the, you know, the camera below the front headlight of the, of the car, or you could suddenly just lift it right up or you can spin it back and look behind, you know, it's, it's the fastest way of filming cars and it's, you know, it's definitive. Um, really it's the definitive piece of kit. And for years and years, it's been dominated by these, you know, like, you know, a Russian arm costs at least a million pounds and they're generally, you know, AMG Mercedes or Porsche Cayenne turbos and McCann's and stuff. Um, but they've always been, you know, gyro stabilized and gyros are, as we all know, quite expensive things and really clever. Um, but now with gimbals and computer technology, that's all being, again, made accessible. And you can buy a Russian arm-esque style gimbal setup for the top of your car for $50,000 now. And wow. you know, there's a company out in the US called Motocrane uh, run by a, a guy that I've got a lot of respect for, a guy called Zach. And he has created uh, a couple of iterations of it. And he is... Yeah, he's selling these out of Minnesota and they are amazing and they're on a lot of shoots and I've just started using them myself and th- mm. this is technology moving on and creating incredible things. I, again, I'm, I've, I've sort of gone off on a tangent and I apologise. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> okay. Hey, we're all about the geeky details. Oh, That's yeah. what we're here for. It's the best. And I think 
I think it was quite interesting because I was watching the some of the behind the scenes from the Vaughan Gittings Jr. Uh, video he did at the ring, mm. which I think you were involved in. Yep. Yep. And you look at the camera rigs there, and not only have you got an arm and a, an A camera, but there's so much stuff now that you can, on the same rig, you've got a stills camera shooting, you've got a B-roll, you've got a GoPro, you've got something wide, something long, yep. and it's... Yeah. Oh, yeah, yeah, it's fantastic. So with the fact that... And again, it, it must be absolutely stressed that things like that Vaughan Gittin shoot, the, the cost of the logistics, the track rental the insurance and food and fuel and getting you know, mm. the guys across was 90% of that film's budget. And there was no squeeze left for anything fancy. So the entire film is filmed basically on, a, on people's own cameras. And that's the thing, you know, that's, that's how tight that production is. But, yeah. you know, and we're still talking, you know, Vaughn's still really really stepped up and had to you know pay twice for that because we got rained out the first time which was insane Mm. but we went back and it was you know the we had the guys from race service filming and us and we had the camera car set up um which was a volvo polestar car which frederick sawley bought along and he you know had this kind of scaffold pole set up and i put my crashed inspire dji drone on the front of it which you know i i swear by that thing that is Mm. still my easy definitive tool for tracking shots because i can just sit comfortably in a car and film stuff and you know what it looks as good as anything else does once it's out you've just got to be not able to get motion sick as you're looking at the screen but you know we had a yeah we had larry chen's you know 1dx just smashing frames out he you know literally taped a stone to the shutter button <laughs> so it was just smashing frames as we were following and he got shots like, it's unbelievable and then we had a b cam wow. and a low cam and you say like a gopro just for kind of like behind the scenes stuff and um and to rig the entire thing on the back um as a solid rig you know took you know 15, yeah. 15 minutes you know it's it's nothing but again the russian arm would have wow. done it instantly but there was no budget for a russian arm and a russian arm wouldn't be quick enough and sometimes I think when you've got no budget or no time or no people, that's when people get creative. And that's when you kind of, I guess, I guess it must get interesting for you at that point because it, it becomes a bit more of a problem-solving exercise rather than just renting all the kit and getting all the people and just executing. Absolutely. It is, you know, it's the classic filmmaker's problem is when you're on a low-budget film, you start to think of ingenious, well, not necessarily me, but, you know, people do think of yeah. ingenious ways of getting around problems and i think that's one of the things i love about again about the sort of the small budget filmmaking things is how do we how do we do that how do we achieve this effect you know what's the the, how do we get this shot and you know and again if you can sort of use the technology that's available to your advantage um and in this case you know like little gimbal cameras and stuff give ridiculous effect in terms of cinematic presentation and stuff it's it's crazy what you can do now in fact i'd I'd go as far as saying almost nothing is unachievable these days with a camera and a laptop i i can't really think of a situation where you couldn't given the time or given the Mm. skill and access to the right software achieve anything Vaughan's film was a really tricky film because, you know, they had a, a few sponsor films to film out of that and a few versions that we wanted to film. But there was a, you know, the the most important one for us was just getting that, just that single hot lap of Vaughan absolutely melting mm. the track. And that was what we wanted to see. And that was just a case of like, well, there was no simple way. We just literally had to follow him round. And when the tyres exploded, we put new ones on and then cracked on. <laughs> you know, we had a, a van with yeah. tyres chasing us around the track. <laughs> and you know we'd pop a tire he'd come around find a stopped on the track we'd put new ears on back up 100 feet and crack on and it was wow. it was like that and we, we went through three sets of tires per lap wow yeah <laughs> it was a it was a great production though and i can't wait to do another one now there's so much more we could talk to you about and we haven't even touched on your car collection which is a fantastic curated collection all on its own but i do want to talk about the international motor film awards which we were talking about earlier this year on the podcast because it seems to be a really interesting place to bring together a lot of content that a lot of people haven't seen and certainly there was a lot of names that i'd never seen before and i wasn't familiar with where did the idea for that come about and how how is it manifested in the form that it is now well the idea for the festival came around when 
my friend Vince Knight, who is a really super talented DOP, we were kind of just chatting with ideas. And I had an idea that I wanted to do. I've also had like a long standing idea that I wanted to get a lot of filmmakers in the same place. You know, I kind of felt that there was like a convention or something that we could do or like a little, some sort of gathering or anything else. And Vince, who is, I'm going to call him a real filmmaker who works on real films. Um, he works <laughs> on actual films with actual humans. And he is much more sort of in tune with the festival circuit. You know, like he's been on a lot, a lot of sort of independent and and, uh, mm. and major release films that have been to festivals and, you know, done well. And he sort of had this idea to turn, uh, to get an award show together. And that, I think just, I think it was, it was a moment where we both realized that there was a hundred percent something that needed to be done. And I've, I'd only been to a couple of film festivals before that. And in fact, I wouldn't even call them festivals. I called one of them sort of an award show and it was, it was a bit mm. pokey. And the other one was just, it was again, a bit unmanageable because it was like this six day extravaganza of sort of bizarre art house stuff. And, you know, you kind of, right. you know, there's only so much, you know, derivative, you know, derivatives of Kubrick that you can kind of manage <laughs> before your head explodes. And so it was a, it was a moment where we realized that we wanted to bring together this extremely specific skill set of uh, filmmakers. And, you know, as I said, as I said earlier, it's so, so important that this is such a, you know, a big, it's a huge, it's a huge dollar industry, the automotive film industry, because everything that we do is difficult. Getting cars, private roads, driving, so, you know, they need space. Everything needs fuel. Everything needs, you know, there's nothing mm. that you can really build um, and do in isolation. And and it's, so, it, it, you know, from that perspective, it's, it is, you know, a bizarrely underplayed industry. And then at the other end, the great thing about cars, and this is really why I love cars the most, is because of the people and the stories that come out of them you know no pun intended they are literally a vehicle to, to, to create like incredible stories and you know the people i've met as i'm sure you have as well is that the cars are like a universal language that bring a certain group of people from incredible walks of life and you know mm. car people either tend to be you know you know quite nerdy and quite socially awkward like myself and they're a bit you know um but then you you know you'll end up mixing shaking hands with you know people who have been on these like glorious road trips across the you know the silk trail and down to extraordinary stories and you know this car was found by this and it was owned by this person this so we realized that there was this absolutely huge untapped resource of people making films especially like independent filmmakers as well and stuff mm. who didn't really get a platform to stand against these these huge commercials and i still sort of maintain that the commercial industry is very difficult to get into. And I'd also argue that it's also not necessarily quite the uh, amazing, glamorous world that it appears to be once you see the final film. Um, I would always be wary mm. about trying to switch from like a really helpful videographer who like, has fun filming cars to someone who's working on commercials because it's a totally different thing. But we really wanted to put all those guys in the same room and share work because as you say there are films which you have no idea even existed and just the fact that the, the the variety of films that come in alone is almost just a fascinating thing the watch list and the the short list is all of it is watchable and all of it is interesting mm. and then you know you start to drill down into who these are and you know you've got independent filmmakers student filmmakers you've got guys who have made a film just for the sake of it then you've got you know the big heavy hitters you've got the commercial guys and then you've got the then at the uh, top end, you've got the drama guys who, you know, have submitted films. You know, we had you know, Baby Driver and Mission Impossible enter this mm. year and stuff, and to name but a few. But And these, you know, these films are so cool to have as part of it. And I think what we've managed to do is create a party, basically, where people go and watch these films and learn some stuff. And then, you know, you've got agencies there who are sort of watching each other's work and you know starting to compete for the best pieces of work and mm. and then you've got you know the young filmmakers who can mix with these people and show that and they you know they can show their work and meet these uh, opportunities with with their work on a big screen that looks fantastic and it's you know what's really cool is the fact that you know student work stands up so often against the uh, the big films in terms of imagination and you know like a student film we never look at budget as a criteria for winning it's always yeah. taken into account that you know we understand that you're doing it with the tools that you've got so you know if you can't afford this that and the other and it's clear that had you had the ability to have that you would have done it 
then that's cool. You know, that's that's really important. And then, you know, and those guys, if they do win, they get, you know, a, a full training course to become a red camera certified um operator and stuff like that and you know, all sorts of goodies. Wow. And it's 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 great. And yeah, it's just kind of grown and we you know, we've been at full capacity every single year at the Grand in Clapham, which mm. scrubs up surprisingly well considering it's a pretty grotty nightclub during <laughs> during the normal weeks. You know, but we got, you know, a Formula One car in there and we've had Russian arms parked outside, you know, from Ian May from camera cars and stuff. And it's now, you know, it's a black tie event and and I can't stress again, you know, I have to shout out to Vince who really does the vast majority of the work to make this happen. You know, he's he is really now the sort of the vision of it. And I just, I guess, sort of mingle around now in the background and just sort of poke my head <laughs> in and say annoying suggestions as and when I feel like it. I think the growth of entries every year always surprises us and the quality is is just phenomenal. And do you do you find that watching those it influences you as a filmmaker? Do you learn as from these as you're watching them? Absolutely. I've I've seen things that I've thought I'm mm. I'm learning about new angles, new ideas, new ways of introducing stories because, you know, one of the the big things about film is not overtelling a story, you know, because you've got mm. visuals and audio in front of you, you don't need to necessarily show someone always getting in the car, pressing the start button and putting the car in gear and putting a seatbelt on, you know, that is such a like an overplayed trope and every time I see it in a film I'm like, oh this bit unless you're Edgar Wright then you can probably get away with exactly it. but then he'll be synced to music and it'll look cool and then the car will <laughs> smash into a J-turn and then nearly hit the camera and all, it's just he's that guy is really kind of gets those sequences nailed oh god yeah he is he is absolutely top of the line but yeah that kind of whole thing about you know, the imagination of people and especially, you know, and also things like the stories that come out, you know, we had the story of Alex Zanardi enter one year and, you know, Alex obviously was doing his, uh, it was all about his um, recovery to racing again after he's, you know, both you know, lost both his legs in a horrific mm. crash and how he was going to get back into, and it was a BMW sponsored documentary which had manufacturer support and it was filmed by, I forget the name of the team now but they were they were great and that was an amazing documentary and i just you know eyes filled with water for the entire thing and just sort of mm. pride him getting back in the car but um those those sorts of moments is what the car world gives us because it's such a roller coaster and you know you've got the money and you've got like really cool stuff in insane engineering and exotic places and you know like incredible action and then at the other end you've got the guy in a shed beating a panel to restore you know, his great-grandfather's mm. 1930, 1901 Didion Bouton or something, anything, just something random. It's um, it's a wonderful, wonderful world. And uh, yeah, the, the, the festival is really growing still. Well, if you ever fancy doing a satellite track at uh, Sheffield Dockfest, let me know and I'll, uh, I'll see what I can let's do. Let's do it. Yeah, yeah. Let's get a, get a little, um, little booth in the corner. And we'd love to get some of the, the films out there because I think, uh, again people want to see these stuff and we try and put you know if you go onto the website um i think you can find most of the films there obviously you can't just watch you know mission impossible on our website but, <laughs> you know, i'm sure you can find it somewhere before we finish i'd like to just go through a few rapid fire questions oh, okay. so favorite car movie of recent years it's gonna be it's gonna be mission impossible fallout it's gotta be i'm just i'm obsessed with it i love the car chase so much it's i don't know it's a hard one i'm gonna go with that or mm, Mad Max or Baby Driver. Oh, I don't know. <laughs> I don't know. I'll, I'll, I'll give you all three. This isn't okay, uh, Desert yeah. Island Films. Sweet, great. Which YouTube channel should people be watching? I'm really, really enjoying Hoonigan Autofocus at the moment. It's Larry Chen basically touring the world, finding amazing cars. He's he's just so into the content. And it's yeah. it's all about, you know, he totally gets each car from a from how the owner loves it as well. So, you know, it's kind of like mm. Petrolicious, but more of a vlog, but there's... Um, okay. He just, you know, it's not like the other Hoonigan stuff. It's just, you know, he's just done a tour of Japan recently and yeah, know, he goes and finds Keiji Sichia's A86 and that garage there. And it's, it's honestly, it is absolutely mega. I strongly, strongly recommend that as a, as a channel. Given a huge budget, what is the film you would love to make? So I did have this idea, right? I I ignoring traditional thrillers and imagining you know making something that's quite specifically automotive and 
and if anyone's listening, you know, like commercially, I'm pretty sure these would be like ridiculous flops, but you know, but it was being to- totally selfish, had a good writing team and someone could sell it. I wanted to make like a live action version of an old computer game that I used to play when I was a kid, which was called Interstate 76. And Wow, okay. Yeah. What was that on? So it was on PC and I think it appeared on a couple of other platforms, but it was set in um, an alternative timeline where the oil crisis didn't resolve in the, right. seven, in the 70s and stuff. And there's this huge fuel shortage. So everyone drives around in Plymouth Barracudas with massive V8s for hundreds of miles, like looking for fuel and killing other people. It's a bit sort of like if Mad Max, but it's not Mad Max. It's all like these polished, amazing looking muscle cars, at which they strap Gatling guns to. And it's um, it's like a high production, it'd be like a high production wow. pseudo B-movie thing um mad max is putting it wrong but you know it'd be set in nevada or utah or something and it's got like this amazing like funk soundtrack um it's it's got got weird hippie vibes because you can like summon poetry over the radio about driving on your own and all sorts of stuff so um you know a little column a a little column b but um yeah it's got cool it's got a cool cast it's a very unusual game and it's very niche, but it was really popular amongst a lot of nerds. Um, but I think it would make a fantastic setting. It really interesting um, how to do it. It's a bit selfish perhaps, but yeah, that's what I would do. Given either that or Wangan Mag- uh, Wang Midnight did that live action. But um, Ooh. yeah, that'd be cool. Which car movie or TV series do you think is worth a reboot? I don't know about you, but I struggle with reboots quite a lot. And like, I think there are so many like untold stories but I, I mean, I, I don't get me wrong. I understand the financial case for people wanting like nostalgia and familiarity. But do you know what? I, I thought about this really hard, and I think I'd love to see some Jackie Chan car films come back. Like I know he was famous for martial arts and stuff, but his car films rocked. And there was a film called Who and I, uh, Who Am I, which was like mm. this kind of pretty mediocre film, but it had this ridiculous car chase with an Evo three, where he's being chased by a ton of like E thirty six three two eights and. They do oh, this wow. ridiculous parking space maneuver, which became like the first clip I remember seeing on the internet where I had no idea where this clip came from. It just appeared to be an mm. Evo 3 evading police by handbrake turning into a car parking space perfectly and the police going past and then him crashing, cracking yeah. on. But it was, it's got like a brand new FTO in it. That's kind of like the hero car. And it's kind of almost... I don't know. It's kind of like, uh, it's not dissimilar to Thunderbolt, which was another Jackie Chan car film, which I would love to see again. That was brilliant. And that basically invented the Fast and Furious franchise, um, which I think I would strongly recommend if people haven't seen that yet. I'm pretty sure there's English subtitle versions on the Mm. internet as well. Maybe, I don't know, maybe a prequel to Fast and Furious wouldn't be so ridiculous now, given like how dumb the series has got. Um, (laughs) You know, can you imagine just, you know, like the origin of, Toretto and how that mm. sort of shop came around and how they started souping up civics to go and steal VHS recorders, whatever it is they did. I don't know. Maybe that. That would be cool. <laughs> that be, would be cool. Pretty cool. Who should I talk to in a future episode of this podcast? I think you're going to get some amazing stories speaking to stunt drivers like, you know, Mark Higgins, who has been on virtually every mm-hmm. Bond film for the last decade um, and his team. And then, um, Again, like someone like Mauro Kaolo, who's like a, a camera car mm. stunt driver who's been driving on Top Gear and Hollywood films since they sort of started the series. Like he will have, they'll have some amazing stories. Um, you've got Jeff, um, I was thinking like Jeff Swartz would be amazing as well. He was a consultant director on Rush. Oh, yes. Yeah. Was it, wasn't he the guy who also did Pike's Peak? Yep. In his uh, turbocharged GT3, which is... Yes. Everyone thinks it's a GT2, but it's actually just a GT3 with turbos on. It's incredible. And obviously he's behind uh, Luftgekult the uh, Porsche air-cooled show. He's, he'd be an interesting chat. He's a nice guy. Interesting. I will add all of those to the list. Two more questions to go. There's normally only one, but I'm going to add a second one for you. What's the best way for people to follow what you do? I'm relatively anonymous on the internet, but um, you can find me on Instagram as Al Clark, uh, all one word, no E, and then on Vimeo under the same thing. But I'm going to say with this vlog that I'm putting together for Bugatti at the moment, we're going to release that on youtube under my company name which is outrun Um, okay so that channel if you it might be out it might not be out by the time this podcast goes live but you can certainly seek it out and subscribe to the channel which would be sweet um i'll I'll be (laughs) flogging it like a dead horse on um, instagram anyway so that's where you can find me and we'll be 
pimping it no end on this podcast over the coming weeks, I'm sure. Awesome. And then one final question for you. When's Outsiders 2 coming out? Mm. <laughs> well, okay. I'll, I'll give you a... I'll, do, I'll give you a... I'll give you a scoop. So Ooh. we know it, it is going to happen, and I'll try and keep this very brief. But we've not wanted to make a second one before we want we could do it properly, because yeah. the, the first one was a bit of an accident. We didn't really mean it to come out the way it did, and it was awesome that it it really worked. It's going to be ten years next year, and that's the plan: is to shoot it. Well, originally it was the plan to kind of shoot it later this year. But we're in interesting yeah. times at the moment, so I don't know what that's going to do. And all of a sudden, all of our plans... So the, my plan is is to put it as a Kickstarter for people to sort of get involved with. I think that's the only way that we're going to realistically oh, wow. fund it. Yeah. So we put together all, I've put together all the pitch documents and everything and you know what we do and how mm. we go about doing it. But we just need to kind of now see what the current climate's going to do. But So we are 100% wanting to do it. It's. We know that this is the time to do it. We've got the idea. We wanted to do something really special and actually really kind of go hard and properly at this now that we all know what we're actually doing. Mm. I had no idea how to make a film or a documentary back in those days, so hopefully got a better <laughs> idea now. But it is, that is what we want to do, but we just now need to um, figure out how we deal with the coronavirus and all of the complications that it is bringing with to the to the film world. True. We look forward to it. I, I, I love the first one. I've, I've lost track of how many times I've watched it, so yeah. Really glad that there's a there's a second one coming and uh, thank you very much Al Clark. My pleasure. Thank you for having me. <laughs>